The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress, social justice advocate, and humanitarian. And I'm Andana Dayani, an entrepreneur, attorney, and most recently, the creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. Welcome to the dissenters. So a little backstory. Mandana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of incredible people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research to create our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Each episode, we meet one of these accidental activists and learn about their journeys. In this episode, we meet our first dissenter, Glennon Doyle, one of the most inspiring people we know. And we can't even say how obsessed with her we are or how hard it was for us to keep it cool and not completely fangirl during this conversation. Yeah, it was a little embarrassing. (laughs) We, We were kind of uber nerds. And when we decided to begin this podcast, we had promised to keep these episodes short. But who the fuck cares? Because Glennon is brilliant and she has so much to share. And who the heck are we to keep you from experiencing the brilliance of Glennon Doyle? Glennon has had an incredible journey. She began her career as a teacher before she launched her blog, Momastery. She had been struggling with addiction for over 10 years and she knew the profound healing power of honesty. So she began writing to create an intentional community where people could be honest, heal, and discover a better way to live. She has since written multiple New York Times bestsellers, which you probably read from Oprah's book club, including her latest masterpiece called Untamed, which is literally one of the most powerful books I have ever read. Glennon is the founder and president of Together Rising, an all-women-led nonprofit organization that has raised over $25 million for women, families, and children in crisis. She lives in Florida with her wife, Abby Wambach, the other coolest woman on the planet and her three children. And now it is our greatest pleasure to introduce our first dissenter, Glennon Doyle, the love warrior. I don't think we have ever been more excited or nervous to do anything in our lives. No, no. (gasps) We are are serious. Absolutely. Absolutely obsessed with you. You are the coolest person we know. The coolest people, <laughs> person we know, the smartest person we know, the most inspiring person we know. You know, your new book, Untamed, I'm like, it's like every page is dog-eared and underlined. It's funny, when we started this podcast, we were like, I don't know if anyone's going to listen, but at least it'll like give us an excuse to talk to people like <laughs> <laughs> So here we are. We've now created a podcast so we can speak to you. Yes, yes. And we obviously, we are so over the moon to talk to you. We feel like we could talk to you for about four hours, but we know that you don't have four hours. So we are going to dive in. How about that? Perfect. For our listeners, uh, can you just give us a a recap of your childhood? Like a 30 second. Real quick. Um, It was just a breeze and easy as childhood is, you know? (laughs) God, how did we survive? Well, I was a really very sensitive child. Okay. So I was 
convinced very early that my big feelings and big anger and big doubt and all of it was just too much. So I found bulimia when I was 10 years old. And I think that really addiction is just a place where sensitive people go to try to numb it all out. Mm-hmm. My childhood to me is a bit of a blur because I think when you fall into addiction, you just lose memory, you lose. So I was a severe bulimic and then an alcoholic and then all the things until I was 26. When I found out I was pregnant with my Chase, who's now 17, I got sober, just cold turkey, all of it, which was wild. And then the really cool thing I'm figuring out lately is that all of that stuff I believed about myself when I was 10 years old that made me think I needed to fall into addiction was actually all of my badassery, like all of (laughs) sensitivity Mm -hmm. that made me feel like I had to numb it out, Mm -hmm. as the world will tell you, is the exact same sensitivity now that makes me a really good artist, right? And the kind of anger and heartbreak I felt as a child is the exact same anger and heartbreak that I'm channeling now as an activist and harnessing with other women to heal the world, right? So it's like all the problems that I thought I had in my childhood are were actually my gifts. We were in the car on the way here and we were talking about the 25 things on Facebook about that moment in your life and how that kind of made you want to be a truth teller. Uh-huh. Can you share that? Yeah, because it was just such a good story. Ugh. Okay, so this is when I first had, I was like, I had three little ones. I was dripping with children. Oh my God, I was staying home with them, which was like, that's such a lovely decision for some people and was a terrible decision for me because, because I'm such an anxious, I mean, my children would have been safer on the streets than they were with me <laughs> at home. I was like hanging on to sobriety. I was very freshly sober. My sister had left me. My sister is my, I don't even know what to say, how to say it. She's like, she's just my person. Mm -hmm. Besides Abby, she's my person. Um, She had gone to Rwanda because she was prosecuting child sex offenders. So I didn't feel like I could say, just stay home. I need you. You know, like I felt like (laughs) they needed her. So um, I was by myself and um, I was so covered with children that I couldn't get to meetings as often as I wanted to, right? So I was feeling isolated and stressed and that always scares me with my sobriety. So one day I opened up the computer and there were these people posting things on Facebook called the 25 things. And I didn't do enough research, but what I thought (laughs) it was, was that people were just writing 25 things about themselves, okay? And so I thought, oh, I could do this. This feels like, this feels good. This feels freeing. And so I sat down, I typed out a list and I posted it and I went to take a nap or something. I don't know. And I came back and opened up my computer and I was terrified because my list had been shared like all of these. This is before my blog, before any of my writing. My list had been shared like a gazillion times and I had like 36 new emails in my inbox and I had four messages in a row from my sister. From Rwanda. Oh my God. Right. So whenever my sister leaves me more than three messages, it means like I've done something inappropriate that other people (laughs) don't do. That's going to like require a lot of cleanup on her part. So, (laughs) so all I can tell you is that I should have read more people's lists first. Cause okay. So here's, 
I'll, I'll tell you, okay, my friend Sarah's number six. Well, my, my number six was I'm a recovering food and booze addict, but I still find myself missing booze in the same twisted way we can miss people who beat us and repeatedly leave us for dead, which was true. But here was my friend Sarah's number six. <laughs> my favorite snack food is hummus. <laughs> And you guys, that was like my lightest one, you know, like it was just, I'm sweating now thinking about it. I was like, oh my God. Like it was, it's like the person that doesn't know how to make small talk at a coffee, you know, and just blows it all up. I'm just always blowing it all up. And so I was like so embarrassed and I was trying to figure out how to take it back and there's no taking it back on the interwebs. Oh my God. And I just shut it and I didn't even go, I would not go back to my computer for 48 hours, but. When I finally went back and started reading these emails, I'm telling you guys, they were from people that I had known my whole life, but I had never really known. Yeah, Because they were all saying things like, my sister's a bulimic and we have never known how to deal with it. And it's the hardest thing. My husband's an alcoholic. I'm uh, over and over and over again. And that's when I figured out, just, just say the thing. We're all walking around thinking that if we're perfect and fake, we will be liked. And it's actually the opposite of that, right? The more vulnerable and real we are, the more we can be seen and the more we can be truly loved and connect with people, which is what we're doing down here in the first place. So that experience, while slightly humiliating, (laughs) was also the beginning for me. I just felt like, oh, this is why I love meetings. Right. 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 Because we don't have to pull out this fake representative self. We get to use our real self. So what if I just did that in writing? You and know, then, and then that's like, when I just you, want to turn the whole world into an AA meeting. And, <laughs> and so that's when you started Momastery. Yeah. Yeah. My <sighs> sister, when she came home from Rwanda over Christmas, she, oh, I still have this letter on my wall, so I will try not to cry. Usually I, I start to cry, but then the Lexapro stops the tears right at the, <laughs> right at the ducks. So I'll probably be okay. I have to say I'm crying inside. She gave me a letter that just said, this is what you were meant to do. Wow. While I'm gone, I want you to get up every morning. I want you to write. I want you to da-da-da. She gave me all these instructions, and I just always do what my sister says. So (laughs) she made me, and that's how the blog started. And then from there, you wrote your books, and then then you started Together Rising. Rising. So how does someone who is a teacher become you? How did this, like how, you know, we always talk about like, activism and that it's not something you go to school for and it's not something that you're taught as a child and right? it's not something you imagine for yourself yeah but mm-hmm. but then but, all of a sudden you blink and something happens or or several things happen and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're like I have to do something so what was that shift for you I don't know I would say that one of the the, the easiest ways that I think that I think we're completely redefining the word activist, right? I don't think anymore that it's like a specific group of people while everybody else doesn't activate. I think an activist is anybody who inside of their life, their family, community, sees something that needs to change and acts on it. A hundred percent. And that's yes. real. That's the whole point of that's this. That's the point is, of this podcast. Is that we're all okay. active. Just, just that, say something. Do something. Do Anyone something. can do it. It's not like it's, you don't have to have gone to Harvard. You don't have to, you know. You don't it, even have to start yeah. an organization. Just 
Just say something. Just say what you're thinking. Speak about the injustice that's bothering you. Just speak. Well, I mean, I would say this. I think that, you know, one of the points of this, of Untamed, is this idea of letting go of the idea that women are peacekeepers, okay? Mm -hmm. The reason we don't say something in a conversation, the reason that we don't do something is that we are afraid of rocking the boat, right? We think, I can't make things awkward. I can't make things uncomfortable. I can't, I can't, I can't. I really like the idea of changing the concept of peacekeeper to peacemaker, right? Mm. Because peacemaker means I don't abandon myself. Right. Right. Because in in a conversation, we know, we like hear the thing, we hear the dog whistle, we hear the racist thing, we hear the sexist thing. And there's a little part of ourselves that like rises up. Yeah. Right. And so, and so how do you live in integrity? Like activism is just integrity to me. So integrity means it's the word integrated. It means what I do on the outside matches what is happening to me on the inside. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I think that women should, we could start doing everybody, not just women, whatever. I'm just going to concentrate on the women. Okay. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Is we just have to be willing to say the thing and let it burn. Right. You know, instead of abandoning ourselves to keep the peace, we can honor ourselves because whatever kind of peace is disturbed by what we say yeah. wasn't peace in the first place. Right. And whoever we lose based on the truth, we never had in the first place. Yeah. Right. I think that we just, one of the ways that we can become activists in every single moment, in every conversation, in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our nation, is that we can stop buying. The false belief that we talked about in the beginning, the false belief that we are always supposed to be happy and grateful and comfortable. Yeah. That when we feel anger, we can express it, right? Yes. That when we feel heartbroken, that we can harness it, right? If we could just let go of this idea that when we feel upset and sad and angry inside, it means there's something wrong with us. And we could change that belief to when we are upset and sad and angry inside, it means that there's something wrong. Yeah. Right? That we might become part of fixing. Why are we taught that our feeling, our big feelings are not something that's acceptable or pretty? Well, I mean, let's let's think about why power and status quo would not want women to feel big feelings like anger and heartache. I think it's because every marginalized group is made by power to feel shame for their anger. Because if women in other marginalized groups keep thinking of anger as something that signals that we need to fix ourselves, instead of anger being a signal that something needs to be fixed out there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Then we won't harness our anger. I mean, the reason why, you know, right now, it's amazing the way that, that power makes women think that their anger is a problem. Yeah. I mean, of course. women at every speaking event I do will, will stand up and say, I'm just struggling with my anger. And I'm like, why? Like, are you struggling with your joy? Like, anger is just a feeling, right? Like, the, there's only yeah. two types of women that I respect right now in the world. And that is women who are angry and women who are in an active coma. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And if you're in a coma, like, wait till you wake up because I'm going to send you some links and you're not going to believe the shit that's going down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Power doesn't want women to be angry because angry women demand change. Right. Right. So I don't don't understand how more people aren't angry. I know we're going to get to this point later as we talk about 
what you've done with your foundation, but, you know, the migrant crisis personally, like, has just, I have lost my mind. I have been to so many different shelters and, you know, I came to this country as a refugee. And like, one of the questions for you is like, how are we not storming these camps in the middle of the night? Like, how are we just living, allowing this to happen? I don't even understand how we're functioning while this exists. And I mean, I'm doing it too. I don't understand. Because you would have always thought your whole life, like, if I ever saw this, I would get on an airplane. That would and, be it. We, t- we say that about the Holocaust. It's like, well, if I lived then, I, I would not just be sitting at home. I would be out there. And yet, we're not, we're not out there every day. It's humbling, isn't it? I remember I pulled a book down from my uh, shelves one day after, um, I think it was after Trayvon Martin. I sat down with my kids, my little girls, and I showed them a picture of this of a civil oh of of um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington, and I was showing them the pictures of the marchers, and one of my little girls pointed to a white woman in the crowd, and she said, "Oh, mommy, look! Um, would we have been marching with them?" And I fixed my face to say, yes, of course, baby, we would have. And then my older daughter said, no, Emma, we wouldn't have been marching with them then. I mean, we're not marching with them now. When I read that, I literally stopped breathing. Out of the mouths of babes, number one. Yeah. Number two, I mean, your book, when you talk about that, it it makes me feel like caught. Like, (laughs) I, you know what I mean? Like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I of course I would be there. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an activist. I'm I'm all in. And then you realize, wait a minute, but I'm not. I, right. I say and I that's am. That's how it happens. And I love to think of myself that way, mm-hmm. but I'm not putting in the work to earn that label. And the the question of are we the people that we think we are? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I think that's a wonderful place to start, right? Like yes. in this idea of, of what do we do now? We have to question who we are in the world, you know? And and I think that the race thing for white women, like you and me, Deborah, is, is a really important place to be because, you know, Mar- it was just Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we all come out of the woodwork. We're all posting our, you know, light and hate and love and all the, the but what's interesting is that we all think that we would have been huge uh, supporters of Martin Luther King back then because we are now. Yes. Right? But that is because it is so much easier to love a dead civil rights activist than it is to love a live civil rights activist oh. because the dead civil rights activist is no longer a threat to our identities, is no longer a threat to our white privilege, is no longer a threat to status quo, right? So what's really interesting is if we want to, to figure out if we would have been supporters of Martin Luther King Jr. back then, we don't ask ourselves that. We say, how do I, am I a supporter of Colin Kaepernick right now? Yeah. Because the approval ratings are similar with white people from now to then, right? So if we want to know who we would have been back then, we don't say, how do, how do I feel about the freedom writers right now? Right. We say, how do I feel about Black Lives Matter now? Right. I think that slow apathy is a really, really dangerous thing. The slow numbing and the slow apathy. And it's always a concerted, planned out effort that you see, okay, so this is why Trump started talking about right away at the beginning of his campaign, one of the first things he did is started calling Mexicans rapists. Right. right? Yeah. Yep. Over time, his language in every single speech that had to do with immigration was dehumanizing, dehumanizing, yep. dehumanizing. That's not accidental. That is the slow revealing of this dehumanizing language that over time 
if we don't fight it, if we don't fight it, if we don't fight it, does something to our brains, which makes us think that those people, whether it's subconscious or unconscious, are less human. Yeah. And so then we are able to stomach, to tolerate treating them in a less human way. But it is a concerted campaign to make us numb. You know, when you're talking about how to be an accidental activist, I think conversation is one of the most important places we can do it. Just everyday conversation, you know? And I just really think whenever you hear any kind of dog whistle, just stopping, stopping the conversation and interrogating it, right? You don't have to be ready with a speech, but you can be ready with a question. What do you mean? Yeah, you're so right. The person should be put on the spot who said the racist thing. Explain it. Explain it, right? I think that for women who want to be do this kind of work in the world, and by work, I just mean speaking. Yeah. In conversation. Um, oh I think God. we're just going to all have to get over what we learned as, as, as young kids that we need to be the cool girl. Yeah. Like, I swear, I think it all comes down to that. That we've all been taught that if we want to hang out with guys or we want to whatever, that we have to be the cool girl. We have to take it on the chin. Oh my we have God. to let it roll. That's how we get their approval. Absolutely. And what we want on some level is their approval or we wouldn't give a shit if they said, why do you want to be a Debbie Downer? Right. Right. Basically, what rises up in us when they say that is, oh, I just be cool, like me, like me. Who fucking cares? Yeah. You know, the beautiful thing about 40, I love being 40 so much. I can't even, like, I wouldn't go back to 30s or 20s for anything. Thank God at 40, like, I actually don't have to care if a group yeah. of guys thinks I'm cool or not. You know, it's okay to be a killjoy yeah. if what you're actually trying to kill is racism and misogyny, which is actually killing people. Right. 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 I don't need to be the cool girl anymore. I, I loved reading about how you said we're we're raised to to be things like a wife and a mom and a, have a job and it's like you you're, you're you're like raised to want to have these titles. I, I'm an executive. Being an executive means like I can be a part of this team of boys and they love me and we can go get beers together and like you just don't realize that you don't really make space to to figure out who you actually are as a person. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, I learned that big time with when I met Abby. Like I I mean, that's what I don't know. I feel like I was as you know, with the, most of the book, like it's been a decade where I've been, you know, kind of a fierce feminist, like speaking out against like institutions and, and, you know, I've been out on the, in the world and on the road and on the page, believing and saying over and over again, women should be trusted, you know, but I just think that there is a big difference between being a feminist who believes that women should be trusted and actually becoming a woman who trusts herself, right? That there are two different things. So when I first saw Abby, I mean, when I first saw her, you guys, my whole being became these three words, which was there she is, right? (laughs) And I am, you have to understand that there was no less romantic person on earth than me, all right? I never understood love, probably because I hated sex. I just pretended the whole, for for decades now, I kind of have a better idea of why maybe I hated sex, but I didn't know at the time, right? Because I thought there was something wrong with me. Right. Not right. that there was just something wrong, right? right? Right. So, so anyway, I just didn't believe in romantic love at all. So to have that moment where I heard those words, you know, I just thought they were coming from up above. I just thought this was like some magical Disney freaking moment. And it took me a long time to figure out those words were coming from within, 
right? I was finally hearing that voice, that self, that deep self voice that was trapped underneath all of those layers of this is who you should be, and this is what a woman is, and this is who you will love, and this is who you will sleep with, and this is how you will speak. And and so, you know, what you're talking about, those cages that we find ourselves in, it's just social programming, right? right? It's how we organize our culture. But there's just this moment that comes and I hope for women in the future, it'll come earlier. For me, it took till I was 42 to just hear this inner voice that really just kind of rattled all of those cages, right? The reason I knew it was my voice is because I wanted her. I wanted Abby. And it was the first time I had wanted anything beyond what I had been programmed to want, mm-hmm. right? And I loved her. And it was the first time I had loved anyone beyond who I had been told to love, right? And the whole world Everybody, even the people who loved me were going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I was still going, yeah, right? And that's how yeah. you know you're hearing from your inner voice instead of the, the voice of all the expectations that the world has for you. Right. Is because there's this conflict between what's expected of you. Yeah. And what you believe to be true inside, right? And you have to figure out, am I going to abandon myself again or am I going to abandon the world's expectations of me? And I think that that goes along with the activism. It's like, I hear this inner voice that's begging me to speak up. It's saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Am I going to abandon that self? Right. Or am I going to abandon this conversation's expectations of me, which is that I will be quiet and docile and cool and keep the peace? It's one or the other. It's like you said, bravery is a decision. It's not something that you wait around for. And you can't wait around for bravery. No. and it, I loved it in the book when you said that when you were writing this book, you, you thought it was a book about the betrayal between a man and a woman. But it ended up, you realized that it was about learning about your self-betrayal. And oh God, yeah. Yes, you wrote that. Oh, that's good. Aren't you smart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So good about that one. <laughs> Literally, I was like, mic drop. And I just, you know, hearing your story, I just, I was thinking, okay, number one, she's so brave. You know, to realize at 42, married with kids to a man, and you're like, literally, I just fell in love with a woman. And everyone is saying, no, no, no. And I know this voice and I'm going to honor it. It all comes back to valuing yourself. Loving yourself enough to put yourself. Trusting yourself. I mean, I think every message from the moment we're born, we talked about, you know, the the very deliberate campaign for power to get us to not see immigrants as human, right? right. So we yes. start thinking bad, 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 right. so that we can tolerate their mistreatment. The exact same thing happens with women, right? Since we're born, the onslaught, there has to be a campaign to pump misogyny into the air. So that we will all, on some subconscious level, believe that women are less than men. Because if we didn't actually believe that on some level, we would not tolerate what we see in our country right now. We would not tolerate it. So we all have to have some level of that within us. Like, for example, the first story I ever learned about women and God, okay, I will never forget it. I'm 10 years old. I'm sitting on the floor. My teacher tells us she's going to, my CCD teacher tells us she's going to teach us about God. And she says, okay, so um, God puts um, Adam on the earth and everything was perfect, you know, while it was just the two bros. And then Adam got bored and stressed. So God made Eve and everything was perfect until Eve wanted something. 
and then she went for it. And then all hell broke loose and all suffering was unleashed on the earth forever. Godspeed. Go with God girls. <laughs> oh my God. Listen, it's, it's, it's most crazy. insidious in religion, but that's what the message is everywhere. Right? right, the message everywhere from the beauty industry, from the diet culture, from from rape culture, from our political world, in every arena, the message that comes from the top is women are bad and dangerous, and so should be only used as ornaments. Right, can only be trusted to decorate, not to lead. Only be trusted to decorate, not to lead. And so this, you know, this campaign to to make us feel less than. Of course, after a while, we're going to stop trusting ourselves. Yeah, I mean. You have teenagers. Okay. I have a son and two daughters until they tell me otherwise. And my son had uh, kids over the other day and they're all on the couch. Okay. There's boys and girls over and I walk into uh, the room and I say, is anybody hungry? Okay. Easy Mm -hmm. question. You would think that this would be an easy question. (laughs) The boys, they all, without taking their, their, their eyes off the TV, they all say, yes. Okay. So this is, they have nailed it. Okay, they have heard the question. They have gone inside themselves, gotten the answer and said it on the outside. Okay, just crushed it. The girls do something completely different. I I watch it like it's in slow motion. Okay, first of all, they're all completely silent. The girls take their eyes off the TV and they start looking at each other's faces. Okay, they are pulling. Okay, they are pulling for, for consensus, for permission. Right. And for approval. So while they start, they're staring at each other doing in some kind of telepathy, they elect a spokesgirl. Okay. I don't know how this happens, but suddenly one of the girls turns towards me and says, no, we're fine. Oh my God. We do this all the time. Of course we do. Right. Because little boys are trained in moments of uncertainty to look inside themselves And girls are trained in moments of uncertainty to look outside of themselves for approval, for permission, for consensus. That's why we, every time we don't know what to do, what do we do? I know what I do. I call 50 of my friends and ask them if they know what I should do, even though I know that they don't even know what to do with their own lives, (laughs) right? And then when they don't know, because they don't know, because, you know, we are all pioneers, there is no map to our own lives. I will take 49 BuzzFeed quizzes, okay? I, I, you guys, I found myself at 3 a.m. one night Googling this, okay? Googling this question. What do I do if my husband is a really good man but keeps cheating on me? Question mark, enter. Okay, I am oh my God. asking a conglomeration of bots and trolls what I should do with my one wild and precious life. Okay, and this is when we, this is a rock bottom, okay? Mm-hmm. This is this is the absolute betrayal of self is what that is. This is, I will ask for anybody else on earth to give me the answers instead of considering the possibility that I already know. Every single thing I need to know is inside, that there is nobody else that knows what I should do. There isn't a minister, there isn't a leader, there isn't a parent, there isn't a friend, there isn't an expert. We have to stop asking people for directions to places they've never been. I always thought it was just because I'm so afraid of being wrong or failing that I did that. That like, fuck, if I just take a position on this or if I decide that this is what I should wear to the party, God forbid... (laughs) God yep. forbid I'm wrong about what I should wear to this party. But my friend 
will know what I should wear to the party and, and will validate the decision. It's insane when you actually say it. Right. And then if you're wrong and people make fun of you, at least you have two people to blame it on. <laughs> totally. Right? Because she told you. Well, I, okay, this now, I actually think that is part of our taming also. I think that women are taught over and over again that you get one shot and that failure means the end, right? It's yes. only men that get to fail up. Right. Yeah. Women, when we make any decision, small or big, it's like we're speaking or we're showing up for all women. Right. And if we make yes. a mistake, that's it. We have to take our ball and go home. So I think that the fear that that perfection fear this constant pulling, this constant. I mean, it blew my mind the first time I figured out, oh, I can I can just get still. I can look inside myself. I can feel around for the decision. And I can just do the next right thing without asking for permission or consensus or approval first. And then after I do the thing, I can refuse to justify or explain myself. Because that's the other thing we do, right? Like we finally make the decision. We cut the person out of our life. We do whatever. And then we spend the next six months explaining to everybody why, why we made the decision so not all, so they can approve of us afterwards. Yes, It's yes. so exhausting. Together Rising started, my sister and I started it together. And basically it started kind of as a philanthropy because we had this amazing community at the blog who were all connecting with each other deeply as people do when they're allowed to hear and tell the truth. And people started sharing about their lives and their pain and their needs. And, you know, we were able to be a bridge because we had people who had, you know, needs, financial needs. um, And we had people who had needs for purpose but had enough finances. So we were able to bridge those gaps, right? And then... And then it became bigger and more intense. And my sister and I every day would go to bed and just think, okay, why are so many people suffering? Like mm-hmm. this was the question that, you know, we, we know these, we get to know them, we contact them, we hear their stories. We know everybody's working so hard. Everybody's trying their best. Like why are so many people suffering? I mean, Together Rising is one of the leading um, organizations reuniting families at the border who've been torn yes. apart by by um, these new cruel policies and old cruel policies. So we will continue to reunite those families and pull them out of the river, but we will also go upriver and give living hell to the politicians who are creating the policies that separate them in the first place. We will continue to, you know, build shelter and create mentoring programs for the LGBTQ community. Um, The teen LGBTQ community is the fastest growing um, community of homeless people in this nation. I mean, we've raised uh, $23 million now. That's insane. She's like, now, now And the most frequent donation is $28. That's what's so cool is that this is all, it's, it's, it's a way of democratizing giving. The giving, we're not getting saved by anybody here. We're not, nobody's giving us huge donations. This is all grassroots, right? So my favorite thing about Together Rising, it's awesome that we've raised $23 million and that it's all by people all over the country who aren't, who are in their homes, who are not, who are refusing to give into apathy, who are refusing to think that just because they can't do everything doesn't mean they can't do something, right? Who are all doing their somethings and together creating this movement. What I'm much more proud of is what we've done with that money. So here comes, so the philanthropy is the collecting it, but the activism is this. My most important intention with Together Rising is to infiltrate the systems. So 
our job is to be a bridge between these warriors in their homes, right, who are going to activate, who are activists. They're in their homes and they are seeing these heartbreaking things and they are activating. They are giving. They are not turning the channel. They are not. They are doing something. They're pressing the button. They're giving $25. They're we're connecting them with the actual warriors on the ground who are doing the best work in whatever scenario we are entering into. So with the immigration issue, we are very, very clear at Together Rising that we are not the warriors. We are the bridge between the warriors in their homes and the warriors on the ground. So when you get attacked viciously on social media <laughs> yep. for a position you take about at the border— Mm-hmm. How do you process that and how do you respond? So first of all, I think there's different categories. And I would say that I think we probably get a lot of the similar mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> situation. So I'm just going to assume a lot here. Yep. Yep. But there's one kind of criticism to me that is from what I would call like the other side. I shouldn't say it that way, but I'm just going to say it that way. Okay. Yes. yes. So, so for example, if you, my friend, are tweeting about um, Shannon Watts and yes. uh, Mom's Demand, yep. you're going to get the freaking violent, crazy ass shit right. from the extremists on the other side. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That stuff to me is yes, please. Awesome. Okay, that means I am on the track. If I'm pissing those people off, it makes me feel like it was a day well spent. God, I have a lot of good days then. Wow. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Like like for me, I'm in the I'm I'm still largely in the spirituality and faith world. So if I'm I'm constantly, constantly being attacked by like extremely fundamentalist evangelical people who hate gay people. Yes. Okay. Yes. If they are yelling at me, that to me is like gold star on my forehead. Like I have done what needs to be done. If I'm speaking at a church, for example, yeah, and I'm talking in a church about straight privilege and white privilege and nobody gets up to leave, I yeah. don't feel like I've done my job. <gasps> Somebody's got to leave. If I'm like, I haven't said enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't whatever. Like made them uncomfortable enough. Right. Like, I feel like church is somebody, I didn't make this up. Somebody said it a long time ago, but church should be the place where you make uncomfortable people comfortable and comfortable people uncomfortable. And if, if I'm in a place where everybody's comfortable, nobody leaves, like I wimped out. So there's that side. For me, the hardest criticism is what I call friendly fire. Mm. So it's like when I said something or did something or had a take that like people I respect. Yes. And they get mad at me. And oh my God. Yes. You guys, I I feel like you should ask someone else on your podcast how to handle that well because it takes me out. It me takes too. me down. Yeah. I can't deal with it. I curl it up in me. a ball. Me too. I say things to Abby about how we're never going to, I'm going to move and I need to live in a rainforest far away. Like I can't deal with life. I can't deal with the world. And she says, we already live in a retirement community in Naples, Florida. I don't know how much further we can go. I find it so, so hard. And so when that hard thing comes, then I just assume that there's something there for me to learn. Right, right. I never, ever think that there's something like, please, Deborah, don't ever think there's something for you to learn from those people that threaten your life. Right. Because you're speaking up for children in schools, right? Right. There's nothing for you to learn there. There's there's a toughness for you to build there and a dismissal of that. 
But when it hurts that bad, when it's people I respect, I just know that there's something for me to learn and I often can't do it right away. Right. I just think that especially like in this moment where we have all, you know, we we are screwed in a lot of ways as women. You know, I'm my marriage and family is under threat all the time. And yet we still have just gooing amounts of privilege. Right. Right. Yes. And because of that, we will say and do things that will reveal that. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. not it's it's not that we've done it wrong or that it's that it's actually real. It's actually in us, right? The reason why sometimes I will say something and someone I respect greatly will say, Glennon, that's there's racism in that. The reason is because I have racism in me that I'm still trying to get out, right? So so what I think is if we change our goal, like I think as women who are white activists. One of the privileges we give up is comfort of not being criticized, yeah. of being right all the time. I think what I'm wow. what I'm starting to understand is I'm not about to get it right tomorrow. It's not, I'm never gonna get it exactly right. I'm just gonna have to keep trying, keep messing up, keep revealing myself for, right. for better or for worse, and keep showing up again and again and again and again and never quitting because that is a privilege. That yeah. I don't want to take advantage of the quitting. God, I love you so much. Dear God. I have to go to one part of your book because I read this 10 times, and Deborah and I were talking about this on the way here today, where you said, I did not know that all feelings were for feeling. That was so incredible because I think similar to Deborah. My whole life, I went around thinking like you're supposed to be happy and everything else is a mutation that somehow you have to figure out how to fix so that you can get mm-hmm. happy. I was and literally I, told, you and, know, life is to be happy. That's oh God. life, you know, and it's a choice. <laughs> literally, literally, my father said that to me. You know, I had big feelings just like you and he did not know my, my family had no idea how to handle it. And it was like, look, it's very simple. You have one life. You can either be happy or unhappy. If Mm. you just make the choice to be happy and then it's done. Yeah. Growing up was really hard for periods of time. I just remember I was like, okay, I'm going to hold my breath and just go. Like, I'm going to get through this to get through this. I'm going to get through this to get to the next step. And I'm going to get through this. And you just hold your breath to get through this school, to get to this scholarship, to get to this program so that you can buy this thing. And everything was like, hold your breath to get to the next step. And I looked at my husband. I swear to God, I remember driving with Peter one day and we were in the car and I looked at him and I said, babe, I feel like I've been holding my breath for 35 years to get to the thing. And I feel like I fucking missed the thing. Oh God, that's so beautiful. And I just... What happened? I've literally been building to get to this place. And I don't even know where the place is. I don't even know if I'm ever (laughs) going to get there or if I passed it. And I have been holding my breath for so long that I have literally felt nothing because I was like, wipe out the pain so you can move forward. And reading that, I was like, fuck, I should have felt all of those things. And I I had no idea I was supposed to. You know, you know how I opened the book with that scene about the cheetah chasing the pink bunny? Yes. The best thing I've ever okay. read, by the way. So that is what that is. When you say that to me, so it was the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then I never, ever got it. Yeah. It's because we never catch the dirty pink bunny. The dirty pink bunny is what's placed in front of us 100%. from every single culture. To, we live in a capitalistic culture. You're supposed yeah. to believe that you just work harder and work harder and work harder and that you'll make enough, you'll succeed enough, and then you will be happy because that is an excellent way to run an economy. 
right? <laughs> it's a shitty way to run a life. A hundred percent. It literally just makes us cogs in the machine. Right. The second you get your house, it's too small and it needs to be remodeled and you need a bigger one. I mean, they're, they're literally, yes. I, mean, I was saying to my husband, there is just no point where I'm going to sit back and be like, oh, oh my goal never. was to go to college. Like I've done all this other shit and I, I'm still like, oh my God, I've done nothing. I'm such a loser. What's wrong with me? <laughs> and the bunny just gets <laughs> further and further and further and further. Yeah. God, it's so true. I mean, I am not a person who's going to be happy. Happy to me is very fleeting. Happy to me it usually comes with at the end of the day when like I'm watching TV. I swear to God, it's like my happiness is so narrow. What do you um, watch, but by I, the way? I need to know this. I, I would be shocking. I would be so embarrassed to tell you. No, I need to like, know. <laughs> I, there, is no, there is no level on TV that I will not stoop lower. That, like, uh, we're lower. I, whatever it is, I we're promise lower you, than you. We're lower than okay. you. So you guys, I am a woman who spends all of her day talking about empowering women and activating women and connecting women. And then it's I go coming. home and I watch the fucking Real Housewives. Yes! Okay? <laughs> we sit there and literally we just every week we're like... <laughs> What's what's wrong with us? You guys, and, and Chase, my kids will come into the room and I'll change it. I'll change it to like a turtle documentary or something. <laughs> and Chase will be like, Mom, I heard them screaming. I know the housewives are here again. <laughs> oh my God. It's just, it's just I don't have in. booze like, anymore. Oh no. He's like, oh no, they're fighting again. He's like, is someone going to flip a table? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Oh God, New Jersey. Oh God, New Jersey. Oh, it's such a good show. Oh, that I makes love me feel New better. Jersey. But also, hey, it just hits me. They have big feelings. They yeah. have big feelings and they're and they own it, man. They and just so fun. And we get to watch it and they get to feel it. And you know, there are consequences, <laughs> but we don't feel the consequences. That's <laughs> we don't feel them. We don't feel them. That's right. You right? know what? I also wonder. Do I just love hearing women hang out and talk? Like mm. if they're, I love yeah. hearing yeah. women hang out and talk. And yeah. like, yeah. I don't have to get dressed yes. to do it. <laughs> yes. You know? The whole thing about the, when the doorbell rings. Oh, God. I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud because we're the same person. Like, I'm like, it's so terrible. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm in my home. I'm in my pajamas. I'm like, who's here? Who's mm-hmm. here? It's the same thing with the phone, the phone rings. I'm like, oh, oh my, my God, God. Who, are you kidding me? Who's calling me? Who's calling me? No, no, who no. Who would cross, who would be that aggressive? <laughs> who would be that of, who breaks, who crosses boundaries in that egregious manner? Who picks up the phone and says, I'm going to call her? Like, you better be my mom. You better right. be my mom. It's like, no, the introvert is, you know. The introvert is strong. The yeah. introvert is strong. But anyway, what you were saying before is here's my new goal. I don't want to feel happy all the time. That's not going to happen. I actually think that's a horse shit pink bunny that was put in front of me by people selling me stuff. I truly believe that like that is all capitalism, right? That is, yeah. if, I, if we keep putting this in front of them because we think the next, they, they believe that the next thing will make them happy. The next thing that will, like you're not depressed because life is a little depressing. You're depressed because you don't have these countertops. Right. right? 100%. And then we just fucking keep buying the thing and we never, ever, ever get to that point of joy that we think it promises us because you can never get enough of what you don't really yeah. need in the first place. Right. Right. This is the hamster wheel of capitalism that we're all on. But I do think that it's a cool goal to not try to feel happy all the time, but just to try to feel alive. 
Mm. Right? Yeah. Like when I'm in deep pain, when I'm in those moments, Deborah, when I those when I've made a done something on social media or whatever it is in my activism where I've where I feel shame or I feel fear or I feel at least I'm alive, man. Like when I was younger, I would have numbed that out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like it's like that pain. That's what we use to become the next thing that we're supposed to become. So I, I have this, it's not like a masochism, but it's a version of me that hovers above me when I'm in pain that knows, okay, all right, just stay with this. Don't abandon yourself. Don't betray yourself. Like this pain is what it means to be alive. You know, so I'm not mm. trying to feel happy all the time, but I am trying to feel alive. And I know the things that I do to make myself feel less t- to numb it out still. Mm. You know, I actually have lists on, in my office of, I call them reset buttons and um, easy buttons. And the easy buttons are the things that I do to deaden myself. Mm. Wow. That take me away from myself. Uh-huh. That help me betray myself, that help me abandon myself. And the reset buttons are the things that allow me to stay with myself. You know, to 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 just allow myself to sit in whatever pain I'm in and just make it through. You know, it's like one of the things that I think is so beautiful about being 40 is that you just stop being so afraid of yourself. Like you've made it through so many things and so much pain and stuff you never thought you'd make it through that you just get really, you stop being afraid of the little fires of life because over and over again, you've learned that actually you're fireproof. It's funny when you you wrote, the shower doesn't have magical powers. You're actually just alone and thinking. And I was like... <laughs> Fuck, I literally used to think that it did. Like, that was where I transported to my, like, deepest self. And it was like, no, it was the only time I wasn't watching CNN. It was like, right. And and listening to my kids scream at me. And I, it's so funny. It's just that you say these things that are so obvious that we don't acknowledge. And it's so, it's it's amazing. It's so genius and so powerful. Glennon, you are, um... We have like seven pages you are of questions extraordinary. left for you, by the way. <laughs> you are you are <laughs> magical and wondrous and a unicorn. And we appreciate you more than we can yeah. put into words. Same. And we're so grateful that you let us go on this journey with you because it, it, it's just incredible how much we learn with you. Mm, I'm just honored that you're trusting me. I think this, I'm so excited for this podcast. I really am. I think this is something that's missing in the world. I think this paradigm shift. I think that the shift of people thinking that activism is something that happens out there by other people Mm -hmm. to activism is something we are all responsible for. Like activism is not something we just turn over to a group of people. It's something that's either in our daily lives or it's not. The most important activism happens at the bus stop. It happens at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. It happens on the phone with your mom. You know, it's, that's the stuff that changes the fabric of the country. I mean, Deborah yes. and I, I mean, it really started, Deborah and I were on vacation together and we were talking about all the stuff that we were working on. And and I was saying, it's so weird to me how people come up to me and are like, oh my God, I can't believe what you're doing. It's so amazing that you're an activist. I'm like, I don't even know what being an activist is. It's not like I got knighted an activist. Like I didn't go to school. I'm literally just saying, you I created- saw kids in cages and was like, fuck, something is messed up. I don't know a ton, but I know that shouldn't be happening. And was just like, I could probably quit my job for a year and help someone figure this shit out. And and we were just like, we need to dispel this mystery of, oh, well, I have to take this massive leap to go do something. Like, 
just do something, literally anything. And if you have a feeling, you should say it. And Shannon was actually our mentor through a lot of what we were doing. And, you know, she was like, I was I was a stay-at-home mom. I just woke up one day and was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to do something. And and if we can just show more people that they can do that, it, it would make we such can a change huge the difference. world. Right. And all of these people you're talking about, you, all of you, Shannon, it's, it's just, I really think it comes down to thinking, okay, kids in cages, what you just said, this is fucked up. Yeah. I'm going to do something. Yeah. <laughs> like, instead of like, I'm going to go to therapy. Right. Inst- right. Yeah. Which, by the way, there's no one on earth who's, I swear to you, there can't be anyone on earth who's been into more therapy than I have. Okay? I'm a believer in therapy. All right, I'm a believer. But all of our problems are not things that we need to fix about ourselves. Yeah. They're yeah. not. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like honoring that self that says no to the kids in cages and joining with other people who, you know, I think that one if women start to, to honor our anger and honor our heartbreak and honor our no, that's what's going to point us towards the stuff we're missing, which is purpose, right? How, yeah. What do people say to you? Women say to me over and over again, how do I find my purpose? How do I find my people? Mm. Everybody wants purpose and their people, purpose and their people. If you actually sit with what pisses you off and breaks your heart, that will be a big red arrow pointing you towards your purpose. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing is when you get to that place, you found your people. You, you find your people. Yep. That's what you guys are doing together. That's what you and Shannon are doing together. That's what we're doing together. Yep. Yeah. Because there's no bond that's greater than the bond that happens among women who are doing the same world changing work together. Yeah. That's your family. Thanks, sister. God, Thanks, that family. Was, that was, by the way, the whole podcast. <laughs> Let's just take that quote. That's it. We are not going to be any more greedy and keep you longer because um, we want you to go home to your children. Mm -hmm. But um, we absolutely adore you and are grateful for you. And please send our love to Abby and to your children. I will. Same. I can't wait to hug you. Congratulations on this book. It is incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, that's right. Untamed. By Glennon Doyle. Everybody, you must read this book. It's extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Carry on, warriors. I'm retiring. (laughs) (laughs) I am sweating. Oh my God, I have to pee so badly. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.